I'm going to focus on a very specific uh, kind of uh, conscientious refusal, and that's the refusal of urologists to treat sexual dysfunction in sex offenders. And um, I mean, part of the reason I'm focusing on this case is because I think it's an interesting case, but I have to say that the main reason is just that uh, it's really the only uh, instance of uh, conscientious objection that I've thought much about. So this is a very uh, new topic for me. I'm not that familiar with the broader literature, so uh, apologies in advance if I uh, am not very sensitive to things that have been said elsewhere in the debate. Um, I should also say I seem to be coming down with some kind of stomach bug and I'm feeling qu quite lightheaded, so if I don't make sense, that's my excuse. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, around a year or two ago, I was uh, approached by this uh, woman, Elizabeth Phillips, who's a urologist at the uh, Boston Medical Center. And she was contacting me because she wanted advice from an ethicist about a policy that she and her urology colleagues were thinking of introducing, uh, which was kind of out of line with professional norms. Uh, so one of the kind of standard conditions that these urologists were involved in treating is sexual dysfunction in men, which basically means uh, impotence, decreased sex drive, or inability to orgasm, or some combination of those symptoms. And the urologists had become concerned because it had come to their attention that some of the patients that they had treated in the past with this condition had actually a history of sex offending, and they were worried that treating sexual dysfunction, particularly the sex drive aspect of sexual dysfunction in uh, sex offenders could result in further sexual offending. Uh, especially since one of the standard treatments is giving testosterone, which is a drug that you can uh, expect to increase sex drive. So they were concerned that in treating such individuals they might be contributing to future sex offences. Uh, and they thought that really what, the, what the, the ideal solution to this policy would to this problem would be to have some system where forensic psychiatrists or some individuals that are specialised in sex offending um, would uh, sort of assess past sex offenders and determine whether they're kind of safe to undergo uh, uh, urological treatment for sexual dysfunction. But no such system existed. They didn't think it was realistic that any such system uh, would be introduced, so they decided to, to take, well, they were considering taking matters into their own hands and introducing uh, a policy of their own, which would be to ask all new patients whether they had a history of sex offending and also to check their names against uh, publicly available sex offender registries that exist in the United States and refuse to treat sexual dysfunction if there was a history of sex offending. So they wanted to uh, adopt a policy which went against the institution's uh, logo uh, motto because it was, uh, was going to make an exception and not provide exceptional care to, to sex offenders. Um, and in fact, they did go ahead and introduce this, uh, this policy subsequently. So on, on discussing with them the kind of reasons for, for this view, it seemed that they had two arguments in favour of this policy. And I'm kind of reconstructing a little bit here, but these, I think, are sort of my interpretations of their arguments. The first argument was an argument uh, from consistency. So they noted that uh, testosterone-suppressing agents, so-called chemical castration, were widely used and widely used coercively in, in various parts of the US and Europe to prevent recidivism in sex offenders. And they thought that withholding testosterone was really functionally equivalent to, uh, to, to chemical castration, uh, so it should be acceptable as well. And in fact, they could argue, I think, that it uh, should be um, less problematic because in general we would think that withholding treatment is less problematic than coercively enforcing treatment. So that was one argument that they wanted to give. The second argument was a more straightforward argument, was just that by treating sexual dysfunction in sex offenders, they would expectably bring about further sex offences, and this would be wrong. 
Now, the reason that they approached me was actually because of, in relation to the first argument, because I had just uh, at the time started working on the ethics of chemical castration. But in this talk, I'm going to set that first argument aside, partly because I think it runs into lots of problems and isn't very persuasive, uh, partly because I don't think it has anything to do with conscientious refusal. So I'm going to focus on the second argument, which I think is best understood as an appeal to the idea of conscientious refusal, uh, and I think is, is somewhat more promising. Um, so there are some problems with the second argument as well, and the urologists were aware of some of these. Some of these are empirical problems. It's not really clear to what extent treating sexual dysfunction in sex offenders does actually increase the risk of reoffending, especially if you look at it as kind of sex, <coughs> sex offenders as a single group. For one thing, much sex offending doesn't seem to be motivated by sexual factors. Um, for another thing, some sex offenders are at a low risk of reoffending with or without treatment. Uh, for example, offenders whose uh, last offence was a long time ago. So if there is going to be any kind of crime-preventing effect of refusing treatment, it's going to be limited to a certain subclass of sex offenders. Uh, and there's also some evidence, although not very conclusive, that there may be a group of offenders for whom um, uh, treating sexual dysfunction would actually reduce the risk of recidivism. At least if we think of the risk of recidivism as taking into account severity of reoffending as well as frequency of reoffending. And that's because there's some evidence that uh, sex offenders who experience uh, sexual dysfunction can uh, behave more violently and end up committing more serious sexual offences than uh, sex offenders who don't experience sexual dysfunction. So, so there are some reasons to be doubtful about this kind of second argument that the urologists gave uh, on empirical grounds. But I want to focus on the ethics of this case, so I'm just going to make the assumption that uh, treating sexual dysfunction does, at least in some identifiable group of sex offenders, increase the likelihood of offending. And I'm going to assume that the policy would apply only to this group. Uh, I'm going to make some other assumptions as well, and I'm going to kind of introduce those in the form of a hypothetical policy. So this is not the policy that the urologists did introduce, but it's a policy that they might have introduced. And I'm just going to call this policy testosterone refusal. So the policy would be to run all new patients against publicly available sex offender registries and collect as much forensic history from the patients as they are willing to provide, and then refuse testosterone therapy for all patients uh, for whom such therapy can reasonably be expected to result in one or more additional serious sexual offences than would occur <coughs> without treatment. I'm going to assume also that this policy is motivated by a moral concern, a concern not to bring about future sex offences. Uh, I'm going to assume that the sex offenders uh, who have fulfilled their, done their time in prison, if you like, and aren't under any kind of conditions of preventative detention or, and so on, uh, that they have a right to uh, testosterone treatment for sexual dysfunction. Um, but I'm also going to assume that it's lawful for individual doctors to refuse such treatment. Uh, and that's because I want so in other words, refusal is not legally ruled out in these cases. And that's because I want to focus on the, the ethics of treatment refusal. Um, uh, and... Uh, so my question is not should we ban treatment refusal in this case or should we permit it, but is it morally permissible for, uh, for doctors to refuse treatment? And I assume that it's legally permissible so that I don't get detained by questions about whether doctors are uh, obliged to follow the law. Okay, so I'm not going to try to come to any kind of all things considered judgment about this policy. I'm just going to compare it to what I think is the paradigmatic uh, kind of case of conscientious objection to medicine, which is the case that we've been mostly talking about in this conference, and that's uh, uh, abortion refusal, which I'll understand is the policy of refusing to perform abortions or certain kinds of abortion. Uh, I'll assume that this policy is also uh, morally motivated by a concern 
For example, that one believes that abortion constitutes the unjust killing of a being of significant moral status. Uh, and in, as in the testosterone refusal case, I'm going to assume that women have a legal right to abortion, but that it's lawful for individual doctors to refuse to perform uh, abortions, uh, at least under certain conditions. Now, the conventional view within medicine, and at least according to these urologists, the conventional view in, in urology um, is that um, testosterone refusal is, uh, is impermissible. Uh, I think many doctors would think that if the doctor, a urologist, comes to uh, discover some information about an offender uh, that makes them think that treatment uh, will cause a serious risk of sex offending, then maybe in that case it's permissible to refuse treatment. But the standard view is that doctors shouldn't, shouldn't go looking for that kind of information. They shouldn't be asking about uh, forensic history. Uh, on the other hand, I think that the conventional view uh, in, within medicine about abortion refusal seems to be that it is permissible, uh, at least under certain conditions, and we've heard all sorts of suggestions uh, over the last two days about what those conditions might be. But this, um, this pair of views seems, uh, seems kind of puzzling to me. Um, I, mean, I do sort of feel some intuitive pull towards it, but I think it's very hard to, to make sense of this pair of views. And one reason for that is it seems to me that the... Um, kinds of factors that you would invoke to explain the permissibility of abortion refusal, if you think it is permissible, uh, are also going to apply uh, to testosterone refusal. So when I start, first started thinking about this, not really knowing anything about the literature on uh, conscientious objection, I sort of thought, well, maybe if abortion refusal is permissible, it's permissible because it meets something like these two conditions. First of all, the doctor reasonably believes that refusing to perform an intervention, in this case an abortion, would, uh, given the like refusal of others, avert a great moral, grave moral wrong. Uh, so the idea there is basically that it's reasonable for the doctor to believe that refusing treatment is kind of doing their bit to uh, prevent the occurrence of a grave moral wrong. It may not be successful in preventing it because others might provide the service, but it's reasonable to believe that they're kind of doing their part uh, to avoid what they think is a, uh, reasonably think is a grave moral wrong. And then the second condition I thought we would need to place uh, on permissible conscientious refusal would be that the magnitude of the harm imposed uh, on the patient by doctor's refusal to provide the intervention falls below some acceptable threshold. Now, I'm aware that there might be lots of objections to these conditions. Uh, I'm also aware that these conditions don't refer to the notion of conscience at all, and some of you might think that... Uh, what I'm talking about, if, if, if these are the conditions for permissible treatment refusal, is not really conscientious objection. It's just something to do with morally motivated objections to treatment. Um, that's fine. In that case, I just say what I'm interested in is morally motivated treatment refusal, not, not necessarily conscientious refusal. Okay, now, so it seems to me that um, arguably at least these conditions could be evoked to justify the permissibility of abortion refusal but it seems just as plausible to me that they could be invoked, in fact, more plausible that they could be invoked to justify uh, uh, testosterone refusal. So take condition one to begin with. Um, seems to me clearly reasonable to believe that um, refusing to provide uh, testosterone in the, in the kind of case that I had in mind where the risk of reoffending would be in increased by one expected extra serious sex offence, that averts a grave moral wrong. So I define the case such that it's reasonable to expect that refusing treatment will prevent uh, a single sex offence, or more than one sex offence. <coughs> and I think it's 
certainly reasonable to believe that a serious sex offence is a grave moral wrong. In fact, I think it's rationally required to believe that, not merely reasonable. Uh, and so, if anything, there's a stronger case that this condition is satisfied than testosterone refusal than an abortion refusal, because it's, it's uh, maybe reasonable to believe that abortion constitutes a serious moral, a grave moral wrong, but I don't think it's rationally required. What about the second condition, uh, that the magnitude of harm imposed on the patient by a doctor's refusal to provide the intervention falls below some acceptable threshold? Well, I'm not sure if this is satisfied in the testosterone refusal case, but I'm not sure that it's satisfied uh, in the abortion refusal case either, and it seems to me that the case for thinking that it's satisfied in the testosterone refusal case is, if anything, stronger. So there are two kind of, we might distinguish two kind of aspects of the, of the harms or burdens that would be imposed on a patient by treatment refusal. One is the kind of cost of seeking treatment uh, elsewhere, uh, and the other is the cost of going without the treatment altogether if the patient is unable to find someone to provide it. And it seems to me that both of those kinds of harm will be typically less in the, kind of ca in the case of testosterone refusal. It will typically be easier for the sex offender to find treatment uh, elsewhere in the sex offender case than in an abortion case because conscientious refusal of the kind that I'm talking about, testosterone refusal, is not a widespread phenom phenomenon. Most urologists treat without looking into sexual history. Um, and it also seems to me that um, if a person does have to go without treatment for sexual dysfunction, the cost of that will typically be less than the cost of a woman being unable to access an abortion, uh, having to go uh, through an unwanted pregnancy, <coughs> and then either adopt out a child or bring up a child that uh, she didn't want to have. So it seems to me that, um, that if these conditions uh, justify um, abortion refusal, then uh, they also are going to justify uh, testosterone refusal. So what, what I want to do in the rest of the talk is to consider some attempts that someone who wants to kind of defend the conventional view uh, that, that testosterone refusal is impermissible but abortion refusal is permissible under certain conditions might uh, invoke. And I think there are five, um, five attempts that are kind of have something going for them and are worth considering but I'm just going to focus on two, the two that I think are the most promising uh, and maybe I'll come to some of the others at the end if I have I have time. So I'm going to focus on one attempt that appeals to the relationship of the doctor to the wrong that's averted, uh, and one attempt that uh, appeals to the idea of discrimination, and this will overlap a little bit with what uh, Walter and Aaron were talking about. And each of these attempts is going to involve refining those two conditions that I set out in some way, and in each case I'm going to kind of assess the attempt by considering can these refined conditions accommodate the permissibility of abortion refusal? establish the impermissibility of testosterone refusal, and are these conditions uh, independently plausible? For example, because they have theoretical considerations going for them, or they can uh, accommodate uh, intuitions about other cases. Okay, so the first attempt um, to, to try to drive a kind of moral wedge between abortion refusal and testosterone refusal uh, appeals to the relationship of the doctor to the wrong that is supposedly averted by the treatment refusal. So one obvious difference between these cases is that an abortion refusal, had the doctor not refused to perform the abortion, she would herself have committed the putative wrong, i.e. the abortion. Whereas in the testosterone refusal case, had the doctor not refused, someone else, in this case the patient, uh, would have committed or would have, in this case expectably have committed the wrong, in this case a sex offence. And if you're uh, an agent relativist about morality, you might think that the doctor has stronger reasons to avoid uh, her, own well, her own wrongdoing than to prevent the wrongdoing of others. Uh, 
so that in general it will be easier to justify conscientious refusal in cases where it's the doctor that would be committing the wrong rather than someone else. So what I'm suggesting is maybe we should maybe we could need to replace condition one with something like condition one star. The doctor reasonably believes that refusing to perform some intervention would prevent her from committing a grave moral wrong. And then that condition might enable us to distinguish between uh, abortion refusal and testosterone refusal cases. Now, of course, an obvious problem with this kind of suggestion is that even if it's the uh, patient who's going to commit the primary wrong if testosterone treatment is provided, you might think that the uh, doctor who prescribes the testosterone is committing some secondary wrong, the wrong of expectably bringing it about that a patient commits a sex offence. Um, but uh, someone might reply to this by saying, well, look, that kind of wrong is insufficiently grave to justify treatment refusal. Um, at least it's not, reason, it's not reasonable to believe it's, uh, it's, it's a grave moral wrong uh, of the sort that would justify uh, treatment refusal. And I, I, I think there are various factors that could be invoked in support of that view. The two most obvious would be a distinction between complicity and principal agency and a distinction between foreseen and intended harm. So um, in the testosterone refusal case, if the urologists do provide uh, treatment and this uh, this uh, leads to the occurrence of a sex offence in the future. At worst, those doctors are an accomplice to the sex offence. They're not the principal agents of that sex offence. And some people think that um, that would diminish the wrongness of what the, uh, what the doctors are doing. That complicity is, in general, less uh, wrong than principal agency. And secondly, in the testosterone refusal case, the harm that will come about to the in this case, the potential future victim of the sex offence, is clearly unintended by the doctor that provides testosterone treatment. Uh, whereas the harm to the fetus, uh, and in the case of abortion, um, is presumably intended. It's intended as a means to bring about what the mother wants. So those considerations might be invoked to kind of dis discount the wrongness of providing testosterone in the sex offender case. But it seems to me that this kind of appeal isn't, isn't going to work. Uh, so, and one reason for this is that there is, there's moral uncertainty, I think, about the significance of these two distinctions. Uh, you know, many moral theories would reject that these... So most consequentialists, for example, would deny that these distinctions between complicity and principal agency and between foreseen and, uh, uh, and intended harm have any moral significance. Uh, and, and so would actually uh, non-consequentialists who are agent-neutralists. Uh, many other kind of moral theories would maybe <coughs> accept that these distinctions make some moral difference, but would nevertheless think that um, wrongdoing that consists in complicity and that brings about only unintended harm can nevertheless be uh, gravely uh, uh, morally wrong. And we heard yesterday that about uh, certain parts of official Catholic uh, moral doctrine that might uh, fall under that uh, category. They're not consequentialist views. Uh, they uh, may accept that there's a distinction between complicity and principal agency that's morally important, but they think that complicity in wrongdoing can nevertheless be very gravely wrong. Now, in reply to that reply, uh, someone might invoke um, the kind of role-specific moral uh, uh, considerations that bear on doctors, what I'm going to call medical morality. Uh, and you might argue, well, maybe it's reasonable in thinking about morality in general to be an agent-neutral a neutralist or a, a consequentialist who thinks that these distinctions make no difference. But uh, it's clearly not reasonable uh, to think that about the moral obligations that fall on doctors. Um, medical morality clearly accepts a, a powerful distinction between 
uh, principal agency and complicity. Uh, and we can see that, for example, in what's often said to be the kind of core principle of medical ethics, above all, do no harm. That's almost always interpreted to mean, above all, cause no harm yourself, not above all, um, don't bring about that someone else causes harm. Uh, this, this principle is normally understood in a way that applies only to principal agency, not to complicity. And also, I think, uh, the, this kind of conventional compromise that we've been hearing about over the last two days in relation to conscientious objection is another example of where kind of um, at least conventional view about medical morality draws uh, an important distinction between complicity and principal agency. So those who think that um, uh, referring is okay but uh, for an abortion, but performing an abortion uh, is not okay, or that conscientious objection is justified in relation to performing abortions but not in relation to referring for abortions, I think the strongest argument that they have on their side for that view is an appeal to a distinction between uh, uh, complicity and principal agency suggest that uh, medical morality accepts such a distinction. Uh, but I think that there are um, problems with this reply to my reply. Um, uh, so so one, one problem is that um, uh, I think it has been argued that, and I think plausibly, that conventional medical morality discounts complicity too much. So Francesca was essentially arguing this yesterday in relation to conscientious refusal. Um, Katrina has defended this more generally, argued that um, you know, medical ethics is too obsessed with kind of direct bringing about of harms and not, not, not obsessed enough with, uh, with uh, bringing about harms indirectly by contributing to the wrongdoing of other people. Uh, maybe that's because historically doctors could mostly only do harm directly, but now there are all sorts of ways in which they can become complicit in the wrongdoing of others. So, you, know, so you might argue that um, even if conventional medical morality uh, draws a powerful distinction between complicity and principal agency, um, a tr a true medical morality doesn't. Uh, conventional medical morality has got things wrong. So secondly, even according to conventional medical morality, it seems to me that um, complicity and even well-intentioned complicity is sometimes... Um, gravely wrong, or at least reasonably believed to be gravely wrong. So complicity in torture would be, I think, probably the best example of this. Um, many, many international codes of medical ethics uh, contain a prohibition of medical involvement in torture, and they don't just mean direct involvement where the doctor is the torturer, they also mean doctors that are involved in developing torture techniques. And typically the idea is that doctors shouldn't be involved in helping to develop torture techniques, even if they're doing so as well intentioned, for example, because the torture is going to happen anyway. Uh, they know that if doctors are involved in developing it, it will be safer for the people who are going to be tortured. Um, still, there's a kind of view contained in these interna some international medical codes, which you might think reflect conventional medical morality, that doctors shouldn't be involved in torture in those kinds of ways. And even maybe many people within medicine would reject that kind of view, but I think people would definitely think that it's reasonable to believe that being involved in torture in such ways is a grave moral wrong and therefore that conscientious objection in such cases would be, uh, would be permissible even if it's not obviously wrong to be involved in torture in those ways. Uh, another example I think would be the case that's come up a couple of times today of the doctors in Australia who refused to uh, discharge uh, refugee children who would be returned to unsafe detention camps. This is a case of, so suppose they had discharged the patients, they would then have brought about that these children were the victims of wrongs, but the, the role of the doctors would have been the role of an accomplice. The harms to the children would have been unintended. Um, nevertheless, uh, you might think that uh, it would be wrong for the doctors to discharge the patients, or at least that it's reasonable enough to believe that it would be wrong to think that conscientious uh, objection in this case uh, is justified. Okay, so I think that um, this 
even if we change my first condition so that it applies specifically to the wrong committed by the doctor and not to whatever wrong is prevented by treatment refusal, uh, I think that it can't, that condition doesn't clearly allow us to distinguish between uh, cases of uh, unintended harm through complicity and cases of principal agency wrongdoing. So I don't think it helps to distinguish testosterone refusal from abortion refusal. So let me now move on to the second attempt. Um, this, uh, this attempt appeals to the idea of wrongful discrimination. So you might think that testosterone involves, uh, testosterone refusal involves wrongful discrimination, in this case against sex offenders, because it involves treating sex offenders differently to the way in which you would be treating other patients who would be provided with testosterone therapy for, for, for sexual dysfunction. And you might argue that abortion refusal involves uh, no such discrimination since abortions are refused to everyone. So this comes back to the topic uh, that uh, Walter and Aaron were talking about, in particular in discussion with uh, Jeanette at the end. So this might be one way in which you could, another way in which you could draw a distinction between these cases. So the idea here that I'm thinking is that you might need to add a third condition to the conditions one and two, or conditions one star and two, uh, and that third condition would be something like this. Doctor's refusal to perform intervention does not constitute wrongful discrimination against the patient who's refused the treatment. <coughs> Now, the kind of obvious problem with this view, which uh, um, uh, Aaron and Walter pointed out, is that on standard kind of accounts of wrongful discrimination, refusing to treat sex offenders isn't going to count as wrongful discrimination. So normally, wrongful discrimination is understood in such a way as that it only applies to uh, people who are treated unfavorably uh, on the basis of certain kinds of group membership, like being members of, member of a certain gender group or a certain uh, racial group or perhaps a certain religious group. And there are various ways in which the kind of uh, relevant kinds of groups are specified. One view is that it's only discrimination or only wrongful discrimination if the, uh, the, group, member, the group is a social, socially salient group, like, like a gender group or a racial group. Another view is that it's only discrimination if the group is a, is a group such that membership of the group is unchosen. Um, if you accept either of those conditions on wrongful discrimination, then um, unfavorable treatment of sex offenders is not going to count as <coughs> wrongful discrimination because the group of sex offenders is arguably not a socially salient uh, uh, group, depends, depending on how we spell out social salience, and, and membership of it is not unchosen. Now, I think that, that there might be a possible reply to this suggestion, though. I think that it's plausible to think that doctors fall into some more stringent anti-discrimination requirement than, than kind of everyday people and they're going about their everyday lives. Um, I think many people think that uh, doctors should not treat, and other health professionals should not treat one patient less favorably than, than another on any grounds apart from medical grounds. So apart from the grounds such as that their condition is less severe than someone else's or their prognosis with treatment is less good uh, uh, than someone else. So most people wouldn't think, for example, that a doctor can permissibly treat uh, rude patients or patients that they find personally dislike, distasteful uh, less well than other patients. Even though that wouldn't count as wrongful discrimination on the kind of standard views, it might count as wrongful discrimination on some more stringent <coughs> requirement uh, um, that's uh, placed on doctors. Similarly, most people would think it's not okay for doctors to treat smokers uh, less favorably than non-smokers, uh, unless there's some medical basis for that, like that the smokers are gonna do less well with treatment than the non-smokers. So I think you might think that doctors fall under some more stringent uh, 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 anti-discrimination requirement, and that would be uh, violated by testosterone refusal, because refusing, um, you, you know, at least it could be argued that refusing um, 
treatment to sex offenders, uh, treatment for sexual dysfunction is refusing treatment on non-medical grounds. I mean, that could be disputed, but uh, I think that could be argued. But I think that there are further problems with this uh, uh, appeal to wrongful discrimination. Uh, and these uh, problems that arise because I think you could plausibly argue that abortion refusal also involves uh, wrongful discrimination. Um, so Jeanette was just pointing out before one way in which it might involve uh, wrongful discrimination if it's actually motivated by uh, sexist views. Um, there are some other ways as well. So one thing is you might think it involves uh, indirect discrimination. Uh, so indir indirect discrimination is discrimination that occurs when members of some uh, group are treated uh, less favourably than others, not because they're members of that group, but because they possess some other feature that's uh, correlated with membership of that group. So it's when people say that um, applicants to Oxford University from state schools are sort of underrepresented in Oxford, and that's because they um, perform less well on interviews, then, then that, that's an appeal to indirect discrimination on one interpretation. So uh, they're, treated, they're not admitted because they perform less well on interviews, but that's correlated with being from a state school, and some people will argue that's indirect discrimination. And clearly, uh, refusal to perform abortions creates burdens that fall disproportionately on women, so you might argue that this is a kind of indirect discrimination against women, and uh, someone might argue that this is an objectionable form of indirect discrimination. I think it's actually difficult to make out that argument, but I think that there's another uh, problem with the appeal to wrongful discrimination. Um, and that is that you can imagine examples of <coughs> refusal to perform abortion, kinds of refusal to perform abortion, that also seem to be discriminatory, at least in the sense that I was referring to before, of involving treating people unfavorably on the basis of non-medical uh, considerations. So imagine a, uh, imagine a doctor who refuses to perform abortions except for women who are um, pregnant as a result of a rape or a contraceptive failure, uh, because the doctor believes that in those cases the woman is not responsible for the pregnancy, <coughs> and that makes a difference to the permissibility of carrying out an abortion. Now I think that most people who uh, think that abortion refusal is morally permissible are going to think that it's permissible in this kind of, when done in this kind of way as well, particularly since you know, there are reasonable moral views according to which responsibility uh, makes a difference. Um, to the, to the moral status of abortion. Uh, but this, this kind of policy seems to involve discrimination in just the same way as uh, uh, refusing treatment to sex offenders does, um, because the fact that a pregnancy was, say, uh, the result of a contraceptive failure doesn't seem to provide any medical basis for uh, performing or not performing an abortion. The uh, differential treatment is being based on, a, on a, a moral judgment about responsibility that seems to be medically irrelevant. So I think that um, that sort of suggests that, that, that there's some intuitive cost to accepting this anti-discrimination, this very hardline anti-discrimination condition. It sort of suggests that um, uh, intuitive views about <coughs> abortion refusal uh, are, are mistaken, insofar as those views are, uh, allow that abortion refusal could be permissible, even if conditional in this kind of way. Okay, so um, uh, I've just consider two of the possible ways of distinguishing these two cases. I don't think that uh, either of those attempts is successful, so my conclusion is basically just that I haven't been able to find any satisfying way of accommodating the permissibility of abortion refusal uh, while maintaining the impermissibility of testosterone refusal. I'm not sure what follows from this, so there are three options. One option is to uh, bite the bullet and say that testosterone refusal is permissible as well. That, um, that you might think that's not a, that's a quite a good option because it's not particularly counterintuitive that testosterone refusal <coughs> is permissible. But I do think that there might be 
some further problems. So you might think that um, if my argument is correct uh, I'm co I, and if abortion refusal is permissible, then I'm com committed not just to the uh, permissibility of testosterone refusal, but also to the permissibility of more controversial forms of conscientious refusal. So imagine an eye surgeon refuses to treat blindness in a sex offender, correctly believing that treatment would increase the risk of reoffending. Here's a case in which I think people's intuitions are going to be much more strongly uh, against uh, the permissibility of conscientious refusal. Uh, and, but you might think that my argument is going to suggest that uh, we have to accept this if we accept abortion refusal. I think there are some ways in which you could try to distinguish this case from my case of testosterone refusal, but it's not obvious to me that those uh, attempts are going to succeed. Uh, another option is to regard my argument as a reductio of the permissibility of abortion refusal, particularly if you do think that it commits, uh, commits, commits me to something like the view that the eye surgeon refusing to treat uh, blindness in a sex offender is, is permissible. Uh, and then a third option is to conclude that my argument has gone wrong somewhere. Okay, thanks.